Produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Bernard Salt. Hello, I'm Bernard Salt. On this edition of the program, we look at how Australia's business sector is progressing on gender equality compared to its overseas counterparts. Australian women are amongst the best educated in the world, and yet we sit at 70th in gender equality. On a global position, we don't sit well. It's something we could learn from here. And we also look at how increased gender equality leads to more overall economic prosperity. If we halve the difference between male and female participation rates, over 20 years, you'd have a higher GDP by about $60 billion in household welfare and be improved by about $38 billion in today's terms. Improvement in gender equality leads to higher economic welfare for all of us. That's all coming up when we discover what happens next. Well, it's no secret that the push for business to embrace gender equality has gained momentum not only in Australia, but across the world. To look at how Australia's development on this front compares to other nations, I spoke to Corporate Non-Executive Director and former Pacific Brands CEO, Sue Morfitt. Sue Morfitt, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Bernard. Lovely to be here. So how does Australia stack up on the issue of equality, particularly in the business sector, compared to its international counterparts? Look, Bernard, Australian women are amongst the best educated in the world, and yet we sit at 70th in the position of gender equality. We were 12th in 2006, and now the World Forum for Economic Participation says that we're 70th. There's a gender global gap that is also measured, uh, that measures the, the well-being of women, and we're 50th in the world, 10 years ago, we were only 23rd. So on a global position, we don't sit well. And yet Australian women uh, have extraordinarily good education opportunities, as do Australian men. And we're not being able to take that from when they finish university into then well-being throughout the rest of their lives. So that begs the question of what has happened uh, in the last 10 or 15 years or so? I think we just haven't caught on to the fact that women are a talent and uh, the talent pool of women needs to be tapped into. If you look at the ASX 200, only 5% of their CEOs are women. So that's 10 women out of 200. And there's only ever one or two that are appointed out of 25 CEOs that are generally appointed every year. It's a nonsense that we can't see that that talent exists. Out of 200 companies, 140 of those companies do not have a woman in a line role, a profit and loss role, that would lead into being a CEO. So... Nowhere are we treating this issue seriously, that our highly educated women are a capability that we must tap into and a productivity issue that needs to be addressed. So we have progressed in some areas, such as childcare, but are there examples of other countries that are doing well that Australia should take a cue from? 
Oh, yes. Well, I think childcare is the biggest hurdle to women being able to progress. And we've also always treated childcare as welfare in Australia versus treating it as an enabler for women to be able to go back to work and do the work that they are capable of and would like to do and do it as well. Sweden is probably the standout country here. They have seven months paid parental leave for women or the birth mother. Then they have five months paid parental leave for the father or the non-birth parent. And that's use it or lose it. So everybody takes it and everybody does it. And it's fantastic. Then at 18 months, every single child in Sweden is guaranteed a high quality childcare position or early education position. And so you have men at childcare, you have men in the playgroups, you have men doing all the things that in Australia are traditionally women. You have men working part-time for a little while, you have women working part-time for a little while, and then you have everybody going back to work and doing as they choose, and you have a whole lot of happy children. So it's something we could learn from here. If Sweden is the gold standard, are the other Scandinavian countries similarly managed? No, no, they're not. But they do have strong childcare and back to work and flexibility programs. But Sweden is the standout. What areas would you like to see more progress in for women? I certainly would like to see that we had an understanding of the female work-life cycle uh, as it currently exists and how we would like it. So we first need to understand that in a woman's early 20s, the vast majority of jobs that a woman takes on, say 15 out of 19 different career groups, she starts with a lower salary than a man and she starts with lower promotional prospects than a man. Second thing is we need to have a look at the mid-career lives of women and how we are managing childcare and caring. Third, then later in their career, when they're in their 40s, women come back to work, they're working part-time and they're not being promoted from there. Why aren't they? They have got great talents and they should be. We need to tap into that part-time pool. Women tend to be the carers for older parents because they've had the part-time work. Their job isn't as valuable. They're the ones that step out. And then later into their careers and retirement, women are working longer in part-time jobs because they don't have the financial security that men have been able to build up in those mid-career years. So there is much to be done. So often equality or gender issues can be marginalised and communicating the flow-on economic benefits from progressive policies in this area can be lost. How do we communicate better in this area? Uh, I think the government in the first instance has to believe this. If the government doesn't believe that there is benefit in women being in our workforce and using the talents that we have invested so heavily in developing throughout their schooling years, then we are up against a brick wall. Organisations such as KPMG have been doing enormous work to show the real financial benefit of women being back in the workforce and maximising their potential, such as um, GDP lifting by $60 if we close the workforce participation gap by 5%. 
businesses need to understand the value of their talent. Wujia has just done this, the Women's Gender Equity um, Agency, has done some amazing research with Bank West Curtain in Western Australia to show that gender-balanced organisations do better in terms of financial outcomes as well as in terms of cultural outcomes. These things need to be part of our day-to-day community debate. So what do you say is the number one gender equality issue we need to solve? And what are the challenges to solving it? Look, I think gender equality and domestic violence, I think, has to take number one because it is unacceptable that we have such enormous domestic violence issues. One of the big ways to deal with domestic violence is for women to have the confidence to be able to leave or to be able to deal with many issues that they face. Much work has been done to show that financial security and independence is a serious help. Childcare is the big barrier to so many women being able to grow and develop their financial security. And so many leaders, male leaders, view the 20-year-old woman as a potential mother, so therefore they're not going to promote her. When she has her babies, they don't treat her work seriously when she comes back to work part-time. So therefore, they spiral down the whole time. Childcare and domestic violence are the two big issues I think will make a massive difference to uh, women, confidence, financial security, and of course, our community as a whole. Sue Morford, thanks for helping us discover what happens next. Thank you very much, Bernard. Closing the gender pay gap and strengthening childcare policies to encourage equal sharing of care are just some of the initiatives that have gained ground in the Australian business landscape. And even though there has been progress, more can be done. To discuss this in detail, I spoke to KPMG Chairman Alison Kitchen and to KPMG Lead Tax Partner Grant Wardell-Johnson. Alison Kitchen, Grant Waddell-Johnson, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bernard. Good morning. Thanks, Bernard. Alison, I might start with you. Looking at gender equality in the business sector, what do you think have been the most significant shifts forward? Well, the good news is I think we are making progress. I think a lot of that's got to do with investor sentiment. We're seeing a steady and continual demand and expectation change coming from the whole investor community, and that drives changes within businesses. So I think these days, most companies, particularly large companies, have targets and often quotas at both the board and the executive level to make changes and to really focus on gender equality and to back up those targets and quotas with monitoring, measuring, reporting and holding people to account. That's driving real change. Of course, I think real change will come with organisational, cultural transformation when everyone's not just doing it because they feel pressured to do it, but they're doing it because they can see the benefits that come from having different voices around the table. So there is still a long way to go, but a lot of those big companies to back up the actions that they're taking are doing more training, building more awareness and generally getting more comfortable with having women at the table. And the last thing I'd say on this topic, Bernard, of course, I can't ignore COVID. There have been lots of conversations about whether this is going to be progress or a setback. 
And I know as we move back to work, some people are worried about presenteeism and men going back to the office and being seen out and about and women working from home. But I think that the positive impact of COVID disruption has been everyone re-evaluating their purpose, their values, and the way we all engage in communities and work. So whether you look at Parliament House, big business, even in our secondary schools, we've heard women and often supported men and boys saying enough's enough and starting to call out and recognise persistent harassment and discrimination. So I think we have seen significant momentum shift and I really hope we've reached a tipping point now. Grant, in terms of moving the gender equality dial, what do you see as being the biggest challenges to this? Well, ultimately what we're trying to do is reduce the difference between male and female participation rates. And you can do that through a whole series of measures, including a more equal sharing of parental responsibility and other drivers in terms of childcare funding. So if we halve the difference between male and female participation rates, Bernard, over 20 years, you'd have a higher GDP by about $60 billion in household welfare and be improved by about $38 billion in today's terms. So there's a real economic benefit, you're saying? There absolutely is, Bernard, and that's what we're aiming at here. Improvement in gender equality leads to higher economic welfare for all of us. Alison, KPMG has done some significant work in the gender equality area. How difficult is it to communicate the message that access to things like affordable childcare leads to more overall economic prosperity? Is it easy for that message to get lost? Yes, we think it has been easy in the past for that message to get lost because, of course, so many people have been subscribing to the traditional narrative that views childcare as extra welfare and therefore views childcare support as welfare support. We've worked really hard to shift that narrative. We've done a lot of work with impartial fact and data-based modelling and recommendations to demonstrate the positive economic and social outcomes that arise from more affordable childcare. At the personal level, the workforce disincentive rate that Grant referred to earlier really demonstrates compelling financial articulation of how unfair that system is and what it means at a very basic level for different families along the income spectrum. And when you look at the whole economy, I think particularly again reflecting on COVID and the general shortage of talent across a wide range of industries now, particularly while borders remain closed for quite a while, We know that the best source of untapped skilled labour is often women currently at home wishing they could work more hours but facing real financial impediments to do so. And I think there's general recognition that there's actually economic benefit, not welfare benefit, from changing these. And I think the last point I'd like to make on this topic is um, much more, it may be a personal one, and that is many women say that when they work three days a week, they have a job. But once they start to work four or five days a week, they can have a meaningful career because their businesses and their employers will take them more seriously. So again, changing childcare has real impact, not just on getting a job, but on having meaningful work, uh, building a career and progressing to the senior executive levels that there's so much pressure for community to achieve now. Alison, there's no doubt that the current situation involves uh, a great pressure or demand for skills and labour. So what you're saying is that that the closed borders in some respects is accelerating this push. Is that the way you're viewing it? Absolutely. The best source of untapped labour at the moment is women who are frustrated that they're at home because it's not worse than working three days a week. Uh, some of our modelling shown that if you work more than three days a week, you pay for the privilege of working those extra days. 
that's crazy when you've got skills that are desperately short and people wanting to work more. I think the real impetus has come right now with borders closed to do something about that and free up those hours and help those women get into senior roles. Grant, what's your view on this? Um, well, Alison's quite right. So we, we've come up with the notion of a work disincentive rate. So many women moving from three days to four days or four days to five days face uh, with the additional taxation and loss of childcare um, a disincentive rate of, of you know, 60, 70, 80% so that they're working um, additional hours for very little money. And we need to do that. We need to um, do further work in relation to childcare um, to make sure that that doesn't happen. Uh, we recognise that the government has done something in the last budget to improve that um, by raising the subsidy for second, third and fourth um, children. But more needs to be done in our view. Alison, we have made great strides forward in the areas of childcare policy and more women on boards. What other areas of equality needs to be focused on? Yes, well, look, we are really pleased with progress being made in some areas, but there's a lot more to do. We know that we have incredibly highly educated female members of society, but they face structural disadvantage in a financial sense right through their working lives, the gender pay gap, childcare, parental leave, all of that leading to lower super, in turn, all leading to greater poverty and retirement. So you need to tackle each one of those elements. One of the ones that's really top of mind for us at the moment, and the next area of focus for us, is to really change paid parental leave policy and to help drive the organisational culture that will be needed to embed gender equality by helping men feel comfortable to take uh, leave, as well as being appropriately financially incentivised to do so. We think that's really important to genuinely changing cultural norms right through a child's life. If parents are equally incentivised to take paid parental leave and the father is at home with the child while the mother is out working right from day one in, in their lives, then both parents recognise and understand what's involved in parenting right from the start of the child's life and it stays with them through the journey. And the children grow up seeing more equal sharing of those responsibilities in households. And that will, over time, have a really fundamental impact. So that's absolutely our next area of policy focus. The other big thing that I think is important, and again, I'm pleased that business is stepping up to this, is once and for all to try and stamp out sexual harassment and discrimination. We know Kate Jenkins reported on this area over 12 months ago. And businesses, and particularly big business, has a real role to play, educating workforces about respectful relationships. It's really interesting to me when we look at um, health and safety in the workforce, every business says there's no place for bystanders. Everyone's got to be an upstander. And I think it's about time we as a society embarked on the same program of thinking uh, on sexual harassment, stopping walking past discrimination, stopping making light of it, and taking proactive steps to stamp it out. And the final thing I'd say, Bernard, is again, just reflecting on COVID. I know I keep coming back to this, but it's so important now, particularly as we seem to be in, um, in a more protracted period of at least short, sharp lockdowns at the moment. We do need to keep an eye, continue to keep an eye on what's happening as we emerge from this, because there is going to be quite a long period of adjustment to hybrid working models. And we need to make sure that we don't um, have any new and unexpected consequences which are detrimental to the impact for women. Grant, practically speaking, how do we continue to move forward to achieve more equality on issues such as superannuation? Um, well, Bernard, one thing we can do there is actually 
have tax-funded super guarantee on paid parental leave. Other areas, we could allow employers to make unused super contributions, concessional contributions to recipients of paid parental leave and extending limits that are currently in place. And we can amend the Sex Discrimination Act to allow employers to make higher super payments um, for parents that have, have taken that leave. There are three things that we could do very, fairly easily. Are they on the drawing board at all or are they just discussion points at this at the moment? I actually think the government is considering a number of these measures in their current agenda. So hopefully we'll see change in the next um, budget or MAIFA. Alison and Grant, thanks for helping us discover what happens next. Hello, I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons, the executive producer of What Happens Next. Now it's that time in the program for something a little bit different where we turn the tables and I get to interview our host and resident demographer, Bernard Salt. So, Bernard, I thought it was interesting that Sue said leaders need to understand more of the life cycle of women's careers in order to further progress in this area. That, that's true. It really does hit my sweet spot as a demographer looking at um, um, uh, opportunity across the life cycle. And particularly for women, I think Sue's point was that uh, women are still not entering the workforce in their 20s at the same pay rate as uh, as men. And then came the issue in their 30s and 40s. Uh, when they're uh, trying to get back into the workforce, uh, of course. I, I do wonder whether, in fact, the current situation with closed borders and business screaming out for skills and talent and labour, whether this is a terrific opportunity to encourage as many people as possible, men and women, uh, back into the workforce, whether in fact that's coming out of retirement or coming out of family leave. I think there's a terrific opportunity for women in particular to make great gains literally over the balance of this year and into next year. It's kind of like a, you know, sort of a golden opportunity perhaps to, uh, to close that gap. And Grant had a comment around how more equality leads to increased economic prosperity for everyone, not just women, but everyone across the board. Well, in fact, this is the idea that uh, everyone can win when there is a greater level of participation. And Grant was citing a study where he said that there was a $60 billion net gain over 20 years at the household level, and which he equated back to $38 billion in today's values, which I thought really does make a difference. And if you inject, can I remember when I was growing up as a kid in the 1960s, my, my mother was in her 30s, went back to work, and our life changed dramatically. We had holidays. We, we got the, the telephone on. It really does make a difference to the uh, average Australian household when there is simply more uh, income coming into that household. It seems, you know, the bleeding obvious, but in fact, it, um, it does make a powerful difference to lifestyles and quality of life, I think. And despite this economic prosperity across the board that everyone wins, Bernard, Alison did say it's easy for that message to get lost. Well, it it is easy to get lost. I mean, there are so many uh, um, priorities in business, of course. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's possible to, to say the right things, but then to not follow it through, not necessarily by design, but just there are so many different priorities. I think the uh, the issue is to ensure that uh, gender issues, equality issues 
are maintained uh, in the top two or three issues that uh, need to drive business behaviour. Um, you know, what you don't want to see is uh, people saying the right things and then moving on to other agendas and then, you know, coming back to it in six months or 12 months or so. It needs to be there sort of front of mind um, pretty much every day in order to, uh, you know, to, to really make a difference, I think. All right. Well, that's all for the program. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you, Whitney. And thank you for listening to What Happens Next. You've been listening to What Happens Next with Bernard Salt. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts.